Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And if you don't have one, our ushers have plenty of extra Bibles. Just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep the Bible. And if you've never read the Bible before, we really want to encourage you. There are so many people I meet that say, oh, yeah, I already read the Bible. But it turns out they probably really haven't. They don't really see the big picture and sort of see it as one person said to me, that real strict book. So if your view of the Bible is it's a real strict book, you're really missing the, the big picture of the Bible. But the book of Romans outlines for us God's plan for humanity through the gospel. And so we've been studying about how we learned in the first three chapters that we deserve God's punishment for our sins, but it's not his desire. He loves us. He doesn't want to punish us. He wants to forgive us. We've lost our way and we're broken. And Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead so we could be forgiven. And so that's the starting point. So if you're just getting started with us, the starting point for a relationship with God is not becoming religious, not trying to become a good person. It's just coming as a sinner and receiving the forgiveness of sins that God offers. But the cool thing about God is that he doesn't just love us just as we are. He loves us too much to leave us that way. Because just as we are, it's pretty messed up. Even if we're pretty good on the outside and people think we're nice, we're broken. And so God's goal for us, the Bible says, is that he might transform us into the image of Christ. And he does that in a number of ways. But first and foremost, the way that he changes us is when we're born again, the Bible teaches that we receive a new life, a new heart, a new mind. Christ lives in us. And that inner working of God then is going to work its way out into the way that we live. And so our mission based on scripture, and you'll see it in our bulletin, is advancing the gospel, bringing people to salvation. So if you're here and you don't know if you're saved yet, you don't know if you're forgiven then that's the starting point. We want to talk about that. But once you're forgiven, then it's to bring you to maturity, to become a disciple who makes disciples. And a disciple is someone who's becoming like Jesus. And so it starts with a work of God's grace in our lives. But God's desire then is to change us into his image. And the way that he does that is through the spirit and through the word, through prayer, through worship, through relationships. So last week we started off in this section of application, and we said the first thing God wants you to do is surrender wholly to God. If you've never done that and you're a Christian, you present your body a living sacrifice. But the way that you sustain that, we saw, was to be renewed in our minds. We have to be in the Word. So we're going to put a slide up here. You may have heard about this, but on our website now, we have uh, Pastor John is developing a, a discipleship um, ministry training resource called Grace Growth. And so knowing that the gospel of grace is what changes us, you can go on here and there will be regular videos to help you to develop as a gospel-centered discipler, recommended resources for renewal, books to read. Some of you are, you know, just looking for, hey, can you give me a book about Christian marriage, about parenting, about finances, about grief, about suffering, about Mission. So we're going to try to provide these ministry training resources, and Pastor John will be talking more about that. But this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 9. And here's, here's the way I want you to think about it. When you become a Christian, first and foremost, your relationship with God changes. 
You're now his child and you're forgiven. Okay, so, so I start with that and I say, okay, God, thank you for forgiving me. Now, he doesn't take you right home to heaven because he leaves us here on earth to transform us and then to make us useful to others. So the starting point is saying, okay, God, I'll give myself to you. My hands and feet and my life now belongs to you. Now, what do you want me to do? Well, what we saw last week, beginning in verse 3, is the first thing God says is he wants you to connect with other Christians. So I want you to think of it this way. In terms of relationships, relationship to God first, surrender to him. Secondly, now relationship to other Christians. Last week, we saw that God wants us to use our gifts in relation to other Christians. This morning, what we're going to start with is verses Chapter 12, 9 through 16, we're going to talk about how God wants us to grow in our love for other Christians. Now, I want you to think about the primacy of love in the Christian life. There's nothing that's a close second to learning how to love. Paul says, you could be full of Bible knowledge and have all faith and all knowledge. You could be sacrificial of all your stuff, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. So love is not a feeling. Love is not just this quiver in the liver We're learning how to love. The Holy Spirit, when we're born again, the Bible says everyone who loves has been born of God. And it's natural at first. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But he then says, I want you to excel still more. So we're going to go through a checklist right now in verses 9 through 16. And it's very convicting, very challenging, very inspiring. God has something, even if you go, oh, I already know this stuff. The Holy Spirit will be speaking to you and saying, Here's some areas where I want you to develop. And it's my prayer that the Lord will develop us into a deeper, stronger, more loving church as we examine what it looks like to love other Christians. So look at verse 9 and we'll begin. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, the the original word for a hypocrite was someone who, who, who in Greek plays would have a mask And they would put up a face. And there was nothing duplicitous about it. That's what his role was in the play. He was a hypocrite. He would just put up a different face. Okay? So hypocritical love is love that's insincere, ungenuine. We say nice things to people when, when they're there. As soon as they're not there, we talk about them. We disregard them. And we're cruel to them. Now... This is something that even as we're teaching children, they need to learn how to do this. So the neighbor comes over. Your son is Dennis a menace. Dennis doesn't like Mr. Wilson. So you say, Dennis, Mr. Wilson is here. Say hi to Mr. Wilson. He says, I don't want to. I don't like him. Right? So embarrassed. I'm sorry, Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson leaves. You say to Dennis, Dennis, that was very rude. You should have been nice to, to Mr. Wilson. He goes, well, you told me not to be hypocritical. I don't like him, and so I'm not going to pretend that I like him. Now, would you say, good point, Dennis. No, you would say, Dennis, it's not hypocritical to treat people respectfully and kindly. And when they're older than you, to show them honor, regardless of how you feel about them. You make that commitment. So an unhypocritical love doesn't mean that you're, if, you, if you don't feel love for somebody, that you're like, well, I'm not even going to speak to him. I don't even like him. You, you ask God to give you the Holy Spirit's strength to treat them with genuine love. So let love be without hypocrisy. But one of the things that Paul often connects love with is holiness and hatred of evil. 
In fact, in Philippians 1, he said, I pray that your love will abound so that you can approve things that are excellent. So notice how quickly he goes, let love be without hypocrisy and abhor what is evil. See, there are so many things in our culture that have become sport and fun that we become insensitive to this. God hates sin. And he tells us as Christians that we should hate what is evil. So for example, if you were to turn on a sitcom and just watch it with a little notebook, you could probably pick up 15, 20 examples of something evil, an immoral relationship or drunkenness or sexual innuendo or stealing or whatever. And, and often that's the humor point. We laugh about it. The Bible says fools make a mock of sin. So as Christians, God wants us to develop, this is a strong word, to have a repudiation for evil. Sometimes, just as an example, people will go, you know, I hate when people tell dirty jokes because sometimes they're funny. And you know what? There's truth to that. But we ought not to say, oh, well, since it's funny, it's okay. Evil is something that God wants us to develop a real aversion to, something that we learn to hate and then cling to what's good. We have to, we have to consciously, as you're parenting and, and as you're choosing your recreation and choosing your music and things like this, if it's wicked, then we should despise it. If it's good, we should, we should gather around it. We should want good literature, good music, good experiences for our family. And remember now, we're fighting against a culture that's the exact opposite. In Isaiah chapter 5, God says, Woe to my people who call good evil and evil good. So as I'm learning to love people, I'm learning to hate what's evil. Paul says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So there's this commitment that says, I just can't do it when I feel like it. I have to make a, a, a commitment to be devoted to these people. So when we ask you to join a small group, it doesn't mean come only when it's convenient. But if there's a good TV show on or you and your spouse are going to have a romantic night or the kids are going to bed early. No, there's a devotion. Like I'm committing myself to other Christians. And we start to realize, wow, that means I have to work on my selfishness. Give preference to one another in honor. I often think of, you guys remember the two chipmunks, Chip and Dale? Remember Chip and Dale? No, 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 you. No, you go first. No, no, you. After you. I'm sorry. So, there's this sense as Christians that we really go out of our way to let the other person, so to speak, go first. Let them have the last munchkin. You know, if there's a little bit of coffee, no, you have it, right? And we sort of think that's funny, but God's really saying, no, make an effort, and God may be speaking to you. You may have a relationship here where you're just kind of like, ah, he's going, no, I really want you to work on that. And then he says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, that's really convicting because as Christians, our culture, unlike maybe the, the last generation, our parents got the idea of what it meant to serve the Lord. And so some of you are like, you know, I'm so sick of that. My parents were dragging me to church every time the door was open. And yeah, maybe there was some excess, but I'll tell you what they had down well, is they understood that the Bible says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And frankly, I like what they were doing a lot better than what many people are not doing. So ask yourself, is it a priority for you to serve the Lord? You're like, well, I go to church. Isn't that enough? That's not even beginning to serve the Lord. Now, understandably, 
everything you do is service to the Lord. The Bible says, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Changing diapers is service to the Lord. But I think Paul has in mind here service in terms of ministry, in terms of getting engaged in your local church. It doesn't mean that the only place of service is within these four walls, but it means service says, hey, I'm going to volunteer at a pregnancy center. I'm going to get involved going down to a soup kitchen. I'm going to try to have a Bible study. I'm going to reach out and build redemptive relationships. I'm going to sign up and, and, and uh, put chairs out. I want to do something to serve the Lord. And if you're not doing anything, think about that, pray about that. Why? What is it that's hindering you or what is it that's causing you to go, well, I used to do that. So he says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. And that word fervent means boiling, right? Serving the Lord. And it's kind of like, here's a good analogy. Do you ever notice new Christians are so excited about Jesus? They like show up at church and they're like, Maranatha, brother, the Lord is good. Let me tell you what happened. And we're just, we just give them that cynical look like, just hang around here. You'll chill out, you know. You'll become lukewarm like us. Instead of going, God, forgive me. Stir me up like that. Cause me to be excited about the little things. I remember as a new Christian, I used to, to go to our, our church and, and mop the, the basement. And this isn't a testimony like, oh, how holy I am. But I look back and I go, I was so excited about that. You know? So if for some reason you've sort of been flagging, you're like, yeah, yeah. God's speaking to you this morning. Just get on your knees and ask God, forgive me. When David repented, he said, Lord, sustain me with a willing spirit. Ask God as a church, that he would work in us to will and work for his good pleasure. And then Paul gives us these, these, these big reminders of how God wants Christians to view life. He says, we need to be rejoicing in hope. That's God's will for you. You want to know what God's will for you? The Bible says, in everything give thanks, rejoice always. Now you go, oh, what do I got to rejoice about? Terrible things are going on in my life. You don't rejoice in your circumstances. You rejoice in hope because you know that no matter what happens, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Jesus is coming back. He'll right all wrongs. Our sufferings aren't going to last forever. So if you've sort of become a little cynical, a little sorrowful, a little dull, a little ungrateful, ask the Lord to awaken you. Lord, help me to be rejoicing. I have so much to thank the Lord for regardless of my circumstances. Help me to rejoice in hope. And then he says, persevering in tribulation. It's just a, a great reminder. Christian living is hard. You're going to be tested. Satan doesn't want you to obey God. And many of you here this morning are just going through a hard time. Relational tribulations, physical tribulations, spiritual attacks, financial tribulations, emotional tribulations. And what's our natural tendency when we go through difficulty? Lord, I'll give you two options. Get this away from me or get me away from that. And the word persevere means to remain under. To say, you know what, what if God does neither one? What if this trouble that I'm going through right now in my marriage, for example, what if he says... No, I'm not going to change your wife immediately. I'm not going to change your husband immediately. And frankly, I'm not going to remove you from that situation. What I'm wanting you to learn to do is persevere. Can you learn to trust me? And so if you're going through a hard time, and the Bible tells us to be compassionate. We're going to see that in, 
and, and minister to each other. But if you're going through a hard time, we often want God to remove it immediately. I want you to think about this. It may very well be that the thing that you want the least in your life is something that you need the most. That tribulation is pushing you toward Christ. It's teaching you to depend on him. It, it, it's causing you to pray more than you would. So God's calling us as Christians. Hang in there and encourage each other. There's always an easy way out. You know, just go use drugs. You know, d- just leave your spouse. You know, I told you the T-shirt I said this. Mother had a T-shirt that said, I've decided I don't want to have kids. And it said, the kids aren't taking it real well. You know, so, so you're like, I'm so sick of my kids. I'm just done with it. Or I'm done with my job. I have so much anxiety, I can't, I can't take this. And God's going, no, I'll help you. I'm not asking you to do it alone. I'll strengthen you. So persevere in your tribulations. And then devoted to prayer. Now, what, what do I need to say about that? Devoted to prayer. Are you regularly, consistently spending time with God in prayer? If you're not, No matter what your excuse is, there's a difference between a sound excuse and an excuse that sounds good. It's inexcusable and dangerous to your own soul to not be devoted to prayer. So I truly want to challenge you. I get it. There's a million reasons why it's very, very hard to have a regular prayer life. But if you're not praying, you're in spiritual danger. And I I know you're going, well, how... This is what discipleship is. Interact with people. Hey, can you teach me how to pray? Can you give me a book on prayer? But when it's all said and done, when it comes to prayer, there's a lot said. But what matters is what's done. And so if you're not engaged in a regular prayer life, that's the starting point. Don't let Satan trick you into thinking, we don't have to have a regular prayer time. Just pray without ceasing. Jesus said, here's how I want you to pray. Give me my daily bread. So I don't even have to wonder how often I should pray. And then secondly, he said, and when you pray, get in your closet. So I know from Scripture that Jesus wants me to have a daily, quiet, personal time of prayer. Now you're going, how how long, pastor, do I have to set my clock? The Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. You will be attacked by Satan. You'll think of a million things that you need to do. You'll, You'll feel like you're not getting anything out of it. You'll feel like, does it really matter? But you will learn that the Spirit of God will help you. And you will find that your burdens, you'll learn to give them to the Lord. You'll learn to fellowship with Him a deeper way. You'll learn to to claim His promises and wrestle with Him and find that peace and joy and blessing that He promises to those who pray. And that's individual prayer. Then secondly, devoted to corporate prayer. If you're married and you're both Christians, I certainly hope that you and your spouse pray together. And you're like, well, we do. It's your turn. Thank you, Lord, for this food. Amen. I'm not talking about saying a sentence at the dinner table. I'm talking about sitting down with your spouse and saying, hey, let's take a few moments to pray together. What's going on in your life? What are you reading? What are you struggling? How can I pray for you? Would you pray this for me? And then starting to lift up other people, as God brings them into your mind, lifting up the church. So, devoted to prayer. And then, contributing to the needs of the saints. This is, this is the challenge of the New Testament. It says, 
This is not love to say, hey, man, I love you, man. I'm praying for you, man. James says, what good is it if you see other Christians in need and you have resources and you say, hey, bless you, I'm praying for you, but you don't help them. The Apostle John said, if you have the world's possessions and you you have Christian brothers in need and you don't share with them, how does the love of God abide in you? Please understand, God's not impressed if you drop a couple bucks in the offering plate. I mean, really. God's asking us to share our resources. All of my stuff is his anyway. So we've talked about giving before. God wants you as a Christian to regularly get into the habit of giving. Not because he's mad at you, but because that's how we express our faith and our gratitude to God. And so, based on statistics, we know that almost half of the people that come to our church, as well as every Bible-preaching church in America, for the most part, give nothing. So, first of all, I want to start with those of you who are giving nothing. We're not trying to get your money. And if you're not a Christian, God's not going to let you into heaven because you give your money. And he's not mad at you because you don't give your money. But if you are a Christian and you're trying to become like Jesus, if he hasn't touched your pocketbook yet, then you're really lacking in what it means to become a mature Christian. Because one of the great displays of love is that we're willing to trust God with our stuff to share it with others. So if you only give occasionally, I want to challenge you. to to develop a habit of giving regularly to your local church. And then being consistent and and, and not fooling yourself and saying, oh, I don't don't pay any attention to what I give. Because the Bible says our hearts are deceitful. If you don't pay any attention to what you give, it's likely that you give a lot less than you think you give. So the dullest pencil will be sharp better than the sharpest memory. You don't have to go around and tell others what you give, but look at what you make. And then look at what you give and say, could I live with a little less? Could I trust the Lord? Could I increase a little bit? The New Testament doesn't command tithing. But I can tell you this. I've never met a Christian who said, I can't afford to tithe. We've tried it and I can't afford it. The way I look at it as when it comes to giving, we ought to look at the other way around. You can't afford not to give as a Christian. So we have a campaign. We're trying to build more offices and space and classrooms for the children. Many of you have given generously. But also, just as needs come up and you hear about a need, it's such a joy. This is going on. So I just want to encourage it to continue. You know, so we say, oh, so-and-so needs a place to stay. Hey, I got something. Somebody needs a car. Hey, we got something we don't. Hey, so-and-so can't. Hey, we, are, we have here a, a fund where we minister to people with needs. So if you have needs... You know, let us know. People are giving generously to that. But then as you're in small groups or you're hearing of other Christians' needs, it just becomes a natural thing to start sharing and being hospitable, opening our homes, opening our lives. This is what New Testament Christianity looks like, not just nice to see you on Sunday morning. So that's the first part. God's going, okay, I want to challenge you to love the brethren. Now, there wasn't anything profound like, let me tell you what the Greek means, like it's not that hard, devoted to prayer, like which word was too hard to figure out. So the biggest thing is we don't want to walk away from here going, oh, that was really neat. Because frankly, I don't care whether you think this was really neat. The Bible says, what good is it if we hear the word and we don't do what it says? We're just deceiving ourselves. So, so the real thing that God's saying to us is, okay, I just spoke to you. Now you're going to respond because you love me. Because I love you and I've forgiven you. All right. The next thing he does is he moves to our relationships with difficult people, especially our enemies. 
Oh, by the way, there's no elbowing at this point, okay? Because I think what Paul has in mind now is, is unbelievers, okay? Um, let me just briefly go through 14 through 16. Um, because it does, it's not really till 17 that he starts with unbelievers. But he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now he's going to come back to that in verse 17. But in between that time, he reminds us as Christians, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And that's really helpful because if we're honest, please understand this. When we come to church, it's okay to not be fine, okay? So at the doorway, you can... You can have permission from one of your pastors. You don't have to be fine every Sunday. Okay, how you doing? Fine, man, fine. Well, what if I tell them I'm not fine? Well, they might think I'm not a good Christian. Nonsense. I'll love and respect you 10 times more if you tell me you're not fine because I'm not always fine. I'm mad, sad, had, discouraged, defeated at times, depressed. So we don't need to be fine. And sometimes we're dealing with broken people and we feel like we have to give them some great advice. You know, they're weeping. You don't need to give them great advice. The ministry of just your presence with them. We often feel like, oh, I need to know what to say. Give me a clever quote. You don't need a clever quote. Just, just your arm around them that says, I care about you and I can't imagine what you're going through. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in your mind. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. It's okay. So I really need to, 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 this is my family, and I need to be devoted to them. But now, how do I deal with difficult people? Well, look at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So one of the most difficult things not to do as a Christian is to retaliate. I have a deep sense of justice. In fact, I'm one of those weird people that likes to watch cops. Bad boys, bad boys. What you got? Because I like to see bad people punished. I want to see them taken off the streets. My wife's like, you know, I'll, I'll slow down. I'll say, looks like there's trouble over there. She goes, you're not a policeman. I'm like, I can, you know. I tried to break up a mugging. I had a gun pulled on me once. Just, I just, and, and I love visual, vigilante and, you know, when the bad guy gets it. The problem is, I want to be the helper. I want to be God's helper. And that's where he's going, that's not your role. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. So something as simple as somebody cuts me off and, and gives me the good luck sign, right? <laughs> I want to say things and do things that Jesus would not approve of, right? And so I need to be reminded, do not pay back evil for evil. It's so hard not to do that. You know, we're not talking about they blew up my house, so I'll blow up their house. A lot of times it's the little things, even something that your spouse or your neighbor or your, your child says to you, we have this sense of, I'll show them I have to win. So God says, don't pay back evil for evil. He says, take thought for what's right in the sight of all men. And I think what he means here is, it's, it's always right in the sight of all men to not retaliate. There's something very honorable about not retaliating. I mean, I'm not saying Martin Luther King was a Christian or Gandhi was a Christian. But, but to not retaliate against evil, there's just something 
virtuous and good and wholesome about that. So God says, this is, this is how I want you Christians to live. Let's keep reading. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, that's a really helpful verse because some of you have a deep struggle when there's a strain in a relationship. It's very difficult for you to live with the possibility that someone's mad at you, that someone doesn't like you, and you want, no matter what it takes, to make things right. But at the end of the day, there are some people, there is nothing you can do. They just hate you, period. So God says, you're not responsible for how they act, but how you react. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Now, years ago, and I'll tell you a quick story just as an illustration. I try to illustrate how I find scripture working in my life. I saw this guy yelling at my son. My son was a little boy. He's like five years old. One of my neighbors was, I could tell he was yelling at him out the window. So I ran out there. I said, what's the problem here? The guy says, you know what your son did? I said, what did he do? He said, he threw grass on my son. And I'm like, you know, okay. I said, did you see it happen? He said, no. He said, but why would my son lie to me? And I said, no, I, okay. I said, but do me a favor. I said, if you're mad at my son, don't yell at a little five-year-old. Just come and I'll take care of it. So my son then says, he said he's going to knock my head off, Dad. And my pinball machine just went tilt, tilt, tilt. So I said to the guy, did you tell my boy you're going to knock his head off? He, you know when you catch somebody lying, they, they can't even think up a good one. He goes, No. And I go, let me ask you a question. Two seconds ago, you asked me, why would your son lie? I'm going to ask you the same question. Why would my son lie? Right? And then I got a little angry. Just a little bit. Just, bit, bit, just a tiny little bit. And I, let's just say I sternly encouraged him not to do that anymore. Right? After that, I thought to myself, here's a guy who lives about four houses from me. Okay? Could I look him in the eye with a good conscience and share the gospel with him? Some of you are going, Pastor, you should have taken him out right there. <laughs> this country was founded on God, guns, and guts. <laughs> Pardon me, but if they hit me, I'll hit back harder. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound biblical? And so God was speaking to me from this very passage, as much as it depends on you. And I thought to myself, yeah, I needed to say something to that guy. But you could be right in what you say and totally wrong in how you said it. So I went to his house. I knocked on his door, rolled up my sleeves. I said, come on out. No, I didn't. I said, listen, I want to apologize. I said, I was, I was way too firm in defending my son. And I, and I just want to apologize to you about it. And interestingly, he said, you know what? I owe you an apology too. Then we hugged. It was so precious. <laughs> no, we didn't. You think every story ends with him going, and then he received Christ. No, he didn't. He didn't. But here's the point. I wanted to be able to say, hey, I could look that guy in the eye and hopefully be able to share the gospel with him. Not have him say, that Christian's a bully. That Christian's a, a, a mean, you know, spirited person. So as much as it depends on you, if there's somebody, you can make a phone call and say, hey, you know what? Not, I'm sorry for what I did, but just, hey, you know what? I apologize. Just trying to be peaceable people, not taking our own revenge. Leave room for God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
So instead he says, this is so counter to what we believe. If, any, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Now, it's just, the idea is just do good for people that are mean to you. If you have an opportunity to help, you see, you see the, 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 the person that hates you. You stop and help them. You offer. You, 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 you do what you can to show them kindness. And then it says, in doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And there are many commentaries that have all different views on this. Some people say that that will turn his face red with shame. Other people have looked at extra biblical literature that those burning coals are God's judgment upon him. But the fact that we're supposed to bless them and pray for them, what we really want is their salvation, don't we? Or do we? I was talking to a, a Pakistani friend of mine, and we were talking about witnessing to Pakistanis. He says, you got to understand something. He says, Christian Pakistanis are afraid to witness to Muslim Pakistanis. See, in Pakistan, it's 2% Christian, 98% Muslim. Well, not all Muslims are like this, but you saw on the news, they just blew up. 370 Christians were, were bombed. 72 of them died on Easter, and 300 of them were injured, right? So now they're in the States, and, and, and we were saying, hey, do you, um, do, do you reach out to Pakistanis? He says, well, actually, we've always been afraid to do that. But, you know, it, it dawned on me. I think there's another thing that might be going on, much like Jonah. When it comes to an enemy... It's not just that you're afraid to reach out to them. You might not even want them to be saved. You might not even want them to be forgiven. You kind of think it wouldn't be too bad of an idea for them to get theirs from God. And that's where the Lord has to change our heart. And we have to say, even hateful people who have done harmful things to us. Jesus says, I forgave you. Will you now forgive them? Will you pray for your enemies? And so... I, I think one of the greatest examples of, of this that I saw in person was when Brett Lynn, many of you remember when Brett Lynn was stabbed? I heard his testimony. He said, I just forgave the guy. I felt, I felt bad for him. I just, I just forgave him, right? And I'm thinking, man, I, I, how did he do that? By the help of the Holy Spirit. This is the encouragement that we have for one another. Don't be overcome by evil. It, 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 if I give in and retaliate, I'm, I'm, I'm overcome by evil. But if I show love back to them, I overcome evil with good. So, we've seen that God wants us to have relationships with believers that are passionate in love. With unbelievers, don't retaliate. Third, we want to look at what God says about our relationship to the government. So, we're going to go into chapter 13. I want to start with this premise. I often ask people, what's the first civilization that had government? It's really interesting. People are like, the ancient Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Hammurabi Code. Hmm. Was it the Babylonians? Was it the Greeks and their democracy and their city-states? Actually, what is government? And where did this idea of government come from? The Bible actually teaches that government was God's idea, not man's idea. And the first example of government is actually in Genesis chapter 9. Because prior to Genesis chapter 9, the Bible says the earth was full of violence and evil. Wickedness. And people were killing and harming and stealing from one another. And you couldn't just pick up, pick up your stone phone and go, I'm calling 911. There, there was nobody to, to protect. There was nobody to defend the orphan, the widow, the, the afflicted. 
People were destroying one another because of the nature of humanity. So when, when Noah got off the boat, God says to him, we're going to do things different from now on. From now on, we're going to set up a system to prevent this ongoing rampant murder. From now on, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed because he's made in the image of God. God actually instituted capital punishment. Not because God's mean, but because God values human life. And God knows that people left to themselves are miserably wicked. And you're like, not us. We're civilized. Yeah? What happens when there's a blackout in New York City? What happens when there's a flood? Without restraint, people go wild. So you might think everybody around you is nice. Many of them are simply not being evil because fear of punishment. So what we're going to learn is that God's the one who came up with the idea of government. It was very limited in its original purpose. It was to punish evil and protect those who do what's right. Now, when its tentacles reach into your health insurance and your education and, you know, the, how far, what your view is on how much the government welfare and so forth, we can't say, well, only if it does it exactly this way, I have to obey it. Because this government was, was, a, was a Caesar, an evil, wicked Nero. And Paul didn't say, only submit to your government if they're good, right? So Paul says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Mark that down. I don't know who's going to win the election. And we're all kind of terrified, some of us, about any of the candidates, right? But at the end of the day, you better pray and you better vote. But at the end of the day, those which exist are established by God. So whether it's Bernie, Hillary, Donald, somebody we don't know or somebody we want, ultimately God always is the one who establishes. Why would he put a bad person? God is sovereign and sometimes he uses bad government to, to fulfill his purposes. So, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. So, you, so this morning, if you get pulled over on the way home and you see like red lights, red and blue lights, just don't get that queasy feeling. Figure, oh, based on that sermon, he's probably pulling me over to tell me that I made a beautiful turn there at that stop sign. He just wants to say, I wish more people were good citizens like you. So, okay, government might not be doing this quite as well, but they do reward citizenship, bravery, and things like this. Let's keep reading, because here's the application. Government's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, you need to be afraid. It doesn't bear the sword for nothing. For it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, at some point, somebody's going to ask you this. What do you think about capital punishment? And you could go, well, Jesus, Jesus changed that, right? Remember when in the Old Testament said, you should stone adulterers. But when they brought the woman to Jesus, said, stone her. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. So many Christians believe that capital punishment is no longer for today. 
problem is, when Paul wrote this, this was after Jesus. And he says, the government bears the sword. And swords were not for spanking. Swords were for beheading. So I think that this is a pretty clear passage to say that capital punishment in certain situations is still biblical. Now, I don't think it should be for things like adultery or things like that, but clearly for murder, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made him. And you see, part of the purpose of this is not just to punish people, it's to restrain evil. It doesn't take a rocket science to look at cultures where if murder is not punished severely, the murder rate is off the charts, right? But in cultures where people know, hands down, if I murder someone, I'm going to be killed, it's stunning to look at the statistics of the murder rate. So I'm not advocating, let's just set up electric bleachers and turn this country around. But what I'm saying is, the purpose of capital punishment is to prevent evil and to put us in a society where we can have a recourse of safety and protection. And so while there are, quote, a few bad cops out there, there are so many people who God says are ministers of God, that the government and, and the police are given to us by God for our benefit, and we ought to thank God for that. And you might say, well, I don't agree with this rule and that rule. Therefore, it's necessary to be subject to them, not just for wrath, but for conscience sake. Now, let's keep reading as I, as I close. Look at this. He says, for because of this, you pay taxes. Or do you? You're like, I'm not. If I, if I, if I pay what the government really wants, you crazy, I couldn't make any money. And beside that, I'm not letting my money go toward abortion. So there ain't no way I'm paying taxes. There's no way I'm going to be honest on my tax form. It's ridiculous. Let them come after me. I got my guns waiting for them. And I'm going, oh, help me with this. You pay taxes. Tax to whom taxes do. I can't afford to pay taxes. Really? You can't afford to obey God? Let me save you some, some breath. If you come to me and you're living together and you're not married and you say, hey, we want to have a Christian marriage, I'm going to say to you, okay, I want you to live apart until you get married. And I've done that and some people have gladly done that and others have said, we can't afford that. And I go, oh, wait a minute. You can't afford to obey God. When we obey God, what happens? God is for us. He's blessing us. He's providing for us. It's always right to do what's right. And so in our culture, there are so many Christians who sort of just go, ah, oh, well, this is nonsense, and I don't have to do it. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes do. Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There aren't exceptions like if you like the government, 
if you agree with the tax rate, if you think this is fair. This is what God's calling us to do as Christians. And we're not the first culture. I hate Uncle Sam's hand is way deep in our pockets. I hate that. But I don't go, he's a jerk, and so I'm not doing it. And so there are ways that you can, for example, I've encouraged our people, if you give to the church, get envelopes and have, have them keep a record and then let them give you a statement at the end of the year that says, this is how much you gave. Not so you can post it on your front window so everyone can see it. So that when you're filling out your taxes, you will get that money back from Uncle Sam. And you're like, I don't give to get money back. I know that. But why leave it in Uncle Sam's pocket? I got a great idea. If you don't want it, get it back and give it to the church again. Do it twice, right? So we can be prudent, we can be wise, but this is a big deal, folks. And this is one of the areas where God is calling you. I challenge you. Obedience to God is not optional. It's, it's, it's where God will bless you. And for some of you, you're going, Pastor, I struggle with that. And, and I understand, there are many things we struggle with. But God is telling us as Christians that we are to be good citizens, that we are to be praying for our government. For example, and I'll close with this, I used to always tell jokes about the presidents. You know, moron, you know, blah, blah, blah. And somebody challenged me one day. They said, doesn't the Bible say to fear God and honor the king? Doesn't it say, give honor to whom honor is due, fear to whom fear? Ah, well, respect is earned, and they haven't earned my respect. Respect is not earned, folks. Respect is to be given to people because of their position, not because of their character. In Ephesians 5, when it says, wives, respect your husbands, husbands don't have to earn that. Because the same passage says, husbands, love your wives. You okay with that? Well, love is earned. And as soon as she earns love, I'll love her. No, you don't love your wife because she earned it. You don't respect your husband because he earned it. And you don't honor the government because they earned it. You honor them because God says to honor them. So what a beautiful thing it would be is if we as Christians got a passion to pray for our government. I'm not asking you to agree. There's a million things I don't agree with. But how often do you pray for your government? How often do you pray for President Obama? How often do you pray for this upcoming election? How often do you pray for our nation? I'll tell you two things to pray for. Pray that this Christians in this country will be free from the wrath of the government. And then pray that this country will be free from the wrath of God. Because somebody said, if God doesn't do something to America soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's get behind our government in prayer, asking God, as Paul said, that we as Christians could live godly lives for the advancement of the gospel in peace and tranquility. So as we close this morning, nothing revolutionary like, whoa, I never heard that Hebrew word before, but very practical, very personal. So I want you to join me as we rededicate ourselves to living out these relationships before the Lord. Thank you so much, Father, that you love us, that Jesus gave himself for us so that we could be forgiven. What a blessing that is. And even as we end our service today, and we have Connecting Sunday, and we have name tags on, I pray that even in the, the, the slightest way that we will make effort to reach out and minister, to meet people, to encourage one another. Pray for our newcomers, that if they're not saved, that they will seek the Lord while he may be found. For those who are new Christians, may they grow. Father, for those of us who are 
in the Lord for some time. Help us to be fervent and serving and giving and knowing that our labors aren't in vain. Forgive us for the ways that we've disrespected our country and our leadership. We pray for the upcoming election that you will put a good man in who will lead us back towards biblical principles and that you will keep Christians safe from persecution so we can advance the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for this place that we can meet to worship and pray and to build a Christian community. Father, help us to make disciples and to be disciples. We give you all the glory, and we're looking forward to the power of the Holy Spirit helping us to carry out your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Be sure to greet one another. That's what these name tags are for.